Would you please join me as I pray? Our Father, we are prone to foolish pride. It's in me to think that my life is about me, to think that others ought to participate in my glory, so badly wanting to be recognized or applauded. And I pray that as we come to this really unique text, that you would use it to expand our view of you and our confidence that you can and do rescue proud people, people that have been shaped by the spirit of Babylon. I pray that as we think and pray about friends and family members that feel far from you, that this text would inspire in us courage and confidence that you're a God who saves, that draws people from death to life and from darkness to light, that there are some maybe even in this room today, God, that have come that are laboring in darkness or in death and you have the capacity and the power to save I pray that you would increase our confidence in you even as you humble us as we sit under this text. We look forward to what you have for us and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you would, imagine with me the person in your life, maybe someone you've known for a long time, a family member, a boss, a coworker, who you are convinced, if you're honest, you're convinced that they will never be a lover of God. You just kind of resolved in your heart, oh, that person, they're cold to the things of God. Maybe they've declared boldly that they're an atheist and they've drawn a line in the sand. Or maybe they have, they have as it were, they're, they're spiritual and they affirm the presence of God in all things, but any specificity about the person and the work of Jesus is offensive and may even cause conflict if it comes up. And you've just resolved, you know, I don't know that this person will ever have a change of heart or will be born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. I want you to call that person to mind. And it, it may be, let's just be honest, you may be sitting there thinking, well, I think that's kind of me. It may be that you're thinking, that's, that's actually my story. I'm here with a friend, but I don't know that I'll ever be in on this. And I just want to say to you about that person, that friend, that family member, or even to your very heart, the text that we have the opportunity to study today shakes us awake and speaks a different word. And what it says is this, God can save anyone. He can do a miraculous work turning the hearts of anyone. This text is stunning for a number of reasons, but the, the, maybe the most stunning about it is that it is penned by a pagan king who has spent the majority of his life threatening and destroying and killing God's covenant people. This entire chapter is written by King Nebuchadnezzar, who we've been introduced to over the last several weeks. And King Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon, and he is writing this chapter in Aramaic, which is the language of the nations, the language of the people. You may be familiar that the vast majority of the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, and the New Testament is written in Greek, but there are a few short chapters written in Aramaic, and this is one of them. It's written in the language of the peoples by a pagan king, and the verses that you just had read over you said that I am writing this to the nations and the peoples and the languages that they would know what God has done for me. 
(laughs) The Babylonian king, the one who has been marked by the spirit of Babylon, which we defined last week as self-exaltation and riches and sexuality. This is what has marked this man is coming near to the end of his life and he's saying, I want everyone in the world to know that the God of Israel has worked on my behalf. And what we, what we see as we study this text is that God is able to save anyone. He can save proud Babylonians, people that are marked by the spirit of Babylon, full of self-exaltation, committed to wealth, committed to their own sexual pleasure and their fulfillment. Whoever those people are in your world, what I want you to hear today is this. God saves proud Babylonians, and we have a role to play. And so we're going to march through the whole of chapter 4 together. We're going to study the, the, the fourth chapter of Daniel and see what does it mean, how is it that God is rescuing and redeeming people that have hearts that are set against him, and what is the role of faithful exiles? People that live far from home, like You and I, Christians that know that our home is in another world, but here we are, far from home, laboring in the fields of God. How can we be used by God to participate in his rescue of the most unlikely people? Well, let's dig in and see if we can make sense of it together. We're going to start by reading a large chunk of this text, picking up a large chunk of this text, picking up where we just left off in verse 4. And as we're reading, the first thing that we're going to see is this, that often... God's word has been heard many times before a heart changes. I want you to see this in Nebuchadnezzar's story. Oftentimes, the people in our lives, they may have heard, they may have heard it many times and not been changed. And, and this is certainly true in Nebuchadnezzar's story. I want us to see this together. In verse 4, it says this. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house. I was prospering in my palace. And I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. This may sound familiar, familiar if you've been studying with us. A couple of chapters ago, in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. There's been about 30 years since that moment to this moment. But this is not new for him. He had a dream 30 years ago that awakened him in the night and unsettled him. And here he is again. It makes him afraid. Verse Verse 6, so I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Now you'll notice the last time he had a dream, 30 years ago, he was a lot harsher. He actually said they had to tell him the dream and the interpretation. He's softening in time. He's had a lot of time with Daniel. He's had a lot of time seeing God moving around him. And here, he's not threatening to tear them limb from limb if they don't tell him the mysterious dream. He's just saying, hey, can you help me with this interpretation? And it says, the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in. I told them the dream, and they couldn't make it known to me. At last, Daniel came in before me. He who is named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream. So you may be asking, why was Daniel not included in the first group? You know, he he called in the astrologers and the enchanters, but Daniel wasn't a part of them. And at last he calls in Daniel. As best we can tell, Daniel has has been promoted time and again throughout this book. And he's actually running the province of Babylon at this point. He's a pretty busy important guy. He doesn't get called in for the first wave, but it's almost as if when no one else can answer, Nebuchadnezzar knows who to go to, and he goes, okay, 
I'm going to go ahead and call Daniel. And Daniel, I need you to help me with this. Verse 9, he says, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. You notice the respect that he has developed for Daniel over the years. He's saying, I know that you can handle this, Daniel. No one else can, but I think you can. He says, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth. Its height was great. Now notice all of the exalted language here. Its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. Its top reached into heaven. It was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful. Its fruit was abundant. And it, it found uh, and it was, it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. Very exalted language. Verse 13. And I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher. Now this is the only time here and just in a few verses, the only time that this word is used in the Old Testament. But as best we can tell, it's an angel. So... A watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree. Now now notice the language is going to be as devastatingly negative as it was exalted and powerful. He says, Chop down the tree. Lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves. Scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots on the earth bound with a a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. And then notice in the middle of verse 15 that it changes, not to talking about a tree, but talking about him. Do you see that? Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. Let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Do you feel it? Here we are 30 years later. Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel have worked alongside of each other for these last several decades. And Nebuchadnezzar has been troubled by a new dream. Incidentally, the punchline of the dream in chapter 4 is nearly identical to the punchline in chapter 2. God raises up kingdoms and tears down kingdoms. And he can place whomever he wants over those kingdoms. He is in control of all. A word that Nebuchadnezzar received 30 years ago, but he never actually received. And so here's God knocking on the door again with a new dream that unsettles him in a similar way, that has a similar punchline, and he comes to Daniel looking for help. What we know is that Nebuchadnezzar has heard from God at least a few times and quite possibly many, many times. He had the dream in chapter 2. And then in the interim, he's had an exchange with some of Daniel's really good friends. You remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, how he threw them into the furnace after threatening to, to kill them if they didn't worship his idol? And what happened after they were thrown into the fire? Do you remember when he looked into the fire last time, what he saw? 
Didn't we throw three bound in the fire, but now I see four unbound. And what we said is that we don't know if he's looking at an angel or if he's actually looking at a pre-incarnate Jesus. But what we know is this. Nebuchadnezzar has had dreams from God. He's had words from Daniel. He actually got to lay eyes on a miracle as it was unfolding and may have seen Jesus himself in bodily form. And now he has spent years working alongside of Daniel, one of the most righteous men in the Old Testament. This man has heard from God over and over and over in really miraculous and stunning ways. That's been his story. And it hasn't changed him in the least. There's an old story told, uh, a preacher from quite some time ago that was ministering in a little village, and he told the story of a blacksmith that worked down the way from the church that he pastored. And he said, I went in to visit the blacksmith with some regularity, just tending on him, trying to shepherd him. And, and the blacksmith bought a puppy. And he said, when the blacksmith would, would hit metal on metal, that puppy would just yelp and yelp and bark and bark because it was so unsettling, that clanging sound of the noise. And he said, I remember the first time I went, I thought, how does this blacksmith do his work with that yapping dog all day long? And he said, and then I came back a few weeks later and The dog was not quite as intense with its barking, but was still a bit unsettled, would jump and would at times yelp on a particular big strike of metal on metal. And then he said, fast forward a few months and I came in and there was the blacksmith working away and the dog had curled up by the fire and was asleep as the blacksmith was pounding. And he said, such it is with the human soul encountering the truth of God's word. Because so frankly, when we, when we first encounter the truth of the scriptures, that there is a holy God that holds us accountable and that we are broken and sinful people that can unsettle us and it causes us to go, well, I don't know how I feel about that. And it, it kind of churns inside of us. But then we hear it time and time again. And, and oftentimes, if it's not responded to, it, it feels like we just curl up by the fire and go to sleep. And the driving power of God's word doesn't unsettle us. It doesn't challenge us. It doesn't spook us. It just becomes the droll white noise that puts us to rest. The truth is that there are probably some people in your life like that. It may be someone that you love a great deal and that when you consider it, it causes sadness in your heart thinking, oh, they have gone to sleep on the truth of God. Or once again, it may be you. You may feel like I've heard this from the time I was in the cradle and quite frankly, I'm a little bit sick of it. I'm just here because my friend invited me or because I think that girl is cute, right? That may be why you're in the room. And what I want you to hear is this, that even though men and women can grow accustomed to the power of the word of God and fall asleep like a dog by the fire, just cozy, it no longer affecting them at the level of their conscience. Even folks like this, God can and does rescue, as we will see in this text. Nebuchadnezzar is asleep by the fire. His life is running alongside of Daniel. He has seen potentially Jesus in the flesh and he has been unchanged, but his story is not over. You see, the first thing that we have to realize is that often God's word has been heard many times before a change comes. So don't lose heart about that person in your life that you love, that you feel like, well, they've heard it all before. The second reality that we see emerge in this text is this. Faithful exiles build rapport over the long haul. 
over the long haul. They build a platform of mutual respect and affection over a really long period of time. Look at verse 19 with me. The next verse says this. And as I read this, just feel it. Like out of this verse oozes mutual respect and affection and care. And it is startling. It is out of place. It should cause us to scratch our head and ask questions. Verse 19 says this, Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. And the king answered, Now listen to Nebuchadnezzar, providing, it seems like, some genuine compassion and care for Daniel. He says, Belteshazzar, let not the, the dream or the interpretation alarm you, And Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may this dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation be for your enemies. Now, this is a startling exchange in the fact that, can we just do a little bit of history together? What is the relationship between these two men? Nebuchadnezzar burned Daniel's hometown to the ground and killed his family. And then he threatened to tear him limb from limb, which typically we like to keep those together. This has not been like a good exchange for the two of them. And then he threw his three best friends into a furnace of burning fire. He has threatened him and mistreated him and ripped everything in his life from him. And here Daniel stands... 30 some odd years later, we're encountering Daniel not as a teenager, but as a middle-aged man. He's somewhere around 50 at this point. He has lived at a distance from his homeland since he was in his teens. And it has only and always been different, hard, devoid of everything that he would have expected his life to be. And he looks at this man and he goes, I'm greatly troubled over this word for you. May this be for your enemies. Now, when he says that, there's part of me that goes, wait a second. If anybody in the world ought to be your enemy, it's this guy, the one who killed your family and took you away from your home and destroyed everything. But Daniel looks at him and he goes, no, may it be for your enemies. How did he get to that point? We're going to learn in a couple of chapters that Daniel has built a rhythm into his life of three times a day he goes to his room and he prays towards Jerusalem. And it doesn't say it in the text, but my imagination takes me to the place of believing that three times a day, Daniel goes in and gets on his knees and he prays for Nebuchadnezzar. The boss that has become a friend that he works alongside of, one who ripped everything from him that he should have been done with a long time ago, but three times a day for decade after decade after decade, he's been praying for Nebuchadnezzar and what was once an enemy has been transformed into someone that he has great affection for. This is, this is straight off the lips of Jesus to pray for those who persecute you, to bless your enemies and to love them. This idea that, that Daniel has transformed his enemies into someone that he looks at. Now, whoever it is in your life that you might count as an enemy, a really bad boss that's proud and doesn't treat you right, or a, a, a coworker that's constantly stepping on your toes, just remember They didn't burn your house down. They didn't kill your family, I'm assuming. I'm assuming they haven't threatened to to tear you limb from limb. That in this text, we're invited into a deeper level of faithful, exilic living that says we can actually transform enemies into something different. 
And he has built rapport over decades in this work. To the point where, did you see it, that Nebuchadnezzar is concerned for him. Nebuchadnezzar is going, don't let it trouble you, Daniel. Just tell me. Just tell me what's on your mind. Their relationship has been radically altered. Just one other note before we press on. The nature of exilic living is simple, faithful, mundane activity stretched over a long period of time so that you're ready when the moment presents itself. Daniel's life in Babylon stretched out over 70 years. Do you know how many episodes within those 70 years are recorded for us? Nine. Nine moments that, that took place over a day or a few days each. <laughs> we, just, we just bypassed 30 years of him like filling out Babylonian TPS reports and sitting in long, boring meetings, making tough decisions, dealing with the inner office politics of dealing. There are probably so many times over those 30 years where we thought, is any of it worth anything? Like, I've represented God, I've tried to pray. Is anything ever going to change with Nebuchadnezzar? He's so proud, and he just is dead to the things of God, and Babylon is destroying people, and I'm just sitting here watching it all go down. How many times he must have thought, what a terrible job I have. What a waste of day into day into day. Faithful, exilic living is showing up, prayerful and prepared, realizing that you don't know when the moment is coming, but it's coming. The moments where those episodes that are going to tell your story and they're interspersed between years of simple, faithful living. You see, Daniel built rapport over the long haul. And then the third thing is that when the moment comes, faithful exiles seize the moment by telling the truth in love. You see, he knew that some will hear the word time and time again, and he's willing to play the long game of just loving and serving those around him, building rapport over the long haul. But then when the moment comes, he seizes it, speaking the truth in love. Look at verses 20 and following. 20 through 27 says this. The tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, that reached all the way to heaven and was visible to the ends of the earth, whose leaves were beautiful and fruit abundant, in which there was food for all, under which the beasts of the field found shade, and whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. This glorious picture that you talked about, Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 22, in these three words, you see why Daniel was so troubled. He looks Nebuchadnezzar in the eyes and he says, it's you. This is about you, O king. You've grown and you've become strong. Your greatness has grown and it reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king, the king saw a watcher, a holy one, come down and say, chop down the tree and destroy it and leave the, stru- the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze and the tender grass of the field. And let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the most high God which has come upon my lord the king. You will be driven from among men, and your dwelling will be with the beasts of the field. You will be made to eat grass like an ox. You will be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over you. Till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. He is saying, Nebuchadnezzar, you are going to lose your mind. 
You're going to become like a beast in the field. Seven periods of time are going to pass by. We don't know what that means. A lot of commentators think it means seven years. Some say, well, maybe seven months or some other period. Or some say it's, it's a divine timing, seven periods in God's mind. He's going, the perfect amount of time that will finally humble you. Whatever it is, it's some extended period of time where Nebuchadnezzar is going to lose touch with reality. And it says, it was commanded to you to leave the stump of the roots of the tree because your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. You see, Daniel in this moment neither hedges, he doesn't hedge, nor does he delight in delivering the hard word to Nebuchadnezzar. The guy that at times has suffered under the oppressive reign of Nebuchadnezzar for 30 years, you would think that if all of a sudden you get the chance to deliver to this guy the word that under divine decree, you're about to lose your mind to become a beast. There might be part of him that if he hadn't really done the work in his closet, praying and coming to love Nebuchadnezzar, that all of the bitterness and the mistreatment would bubble up and be like, oh, you finally get it coming to you, man. <laughs> You're going to lose it. You're going to be pathetic and humiliated out in the fields. You're going to be barely human. But he's not delighting in it. But he's also not hedging. He speaks the full truth in love. And he goes, you are going to be called to account for your rebellion and your sin. You see, when the moment comes, he seizes it. And he proclaims, it is you. And then at the end, he gives that therefore, the conclusion statement saying, so stop sinning. Stop mistreating the oppressed. What we know is that Nebuchadnezzar was the builder of great things. He made Babylon beautiful and he built everything on the backs of slave labor. He oppressed the weakest and the poorest to prop up his own grandeur and glory. And here's Daniel who stood by his side while he's done all of these building campaigns. And in this moment, he's finally able to look at him and go, you need to stop it. You stop taking advantage of people. And maybe perhaps God will extend your prosperity. You see, as you walk through life with those people, those people that have gone to sleep on the truth of God's word and you wonder, will they ever have ears to hear? The truth is, moments will arrive. And the question is, will we be prepared? Sometimes it's a new marriage or a struggling marriage. Sometimes it's a new baby and realizing that parenting is hard and I'm at the end of myself. Sometimes it's tragedy or heartache. But moments arrive, and if we've built rapport over the long haul, even when mistreated, showing grace and loving and tending to people, and knowing that we're operating with the wisdom of the Holy Spirit running alongside of their life, when the moment arrives, they very well may come to you saying, what do I do now? The question is, will we be prepared? I do remember one such moment in my life, a friend that I've been praying for daily for about four years and we'd had several conversations about truth and, and it was always kind of like, oh, that's nice for you. That sounds good. And we shared a lot of meals. We spent a lot of time. And I remember one night he called me somewhat frantic and said, I really need to talk to you. And so I walked down to his house and we stood in the, in the driveway and he said, uh, I just found out that last night a very dear friend of mine 
killed his bride and then shot himself. He said, we've been friends for 20 years. I talked to him last week. He said, how can there be such wickedness in the world? And he said, and in someone that I loved. He said, if he can do it, like maybe I could do that. And it was like all of a sudden, what was dawning on him was that sin is real and it's in us. And it had been years of praying and sharing and there had never been years, but in that moment, I got to hug him and to cry with him and to pray over him and to announce the gospel to him. To share with him that God came to rescue sinners, that we are all hopelessly flawed in and of ourselves, bent in on ourselves and away from God in a way that destroys the people that get closest to us because our selfishness and self-exaltation wounds and breaks everything that it touches. But God rescues and reorients us by his son. And I was able to share that night, that night in a way that I hadn't previously because when the moment arrives, those that have been asleep by the fire are awakened. You see, part of God's ability to save anyone is that the moment arrives, we must speak the truth in love. But the truth is, this still doesn't do it. <laughs> Even here, Nebuchadnezzar is not transformed. And it may be that you have had this experience where you've walked with someone and you go, even now at the moment of your desperation, you don't receive this word. You may feel like, well, certainly now this is a lost cause. Certainly now I'm going to wash my hands. But I want you to see what happens with Nebuchadnezzar in the verses that follow. Because what, what we're ultimately going to see is this, is that humiliation is required. Humiliation is required for the restoration of sanity. I'll even press it a little bit further for all of our hearts. Humiliation is required for any of us to be born again. Look at verse 28. It says this, All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. A year has passed, and not much has changed, we will see. The king answered and says, Is not this great Babylon, which I built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? Now, he was standing on the, the palace roof looking out. He could see the hanging gardens, one of the seven wonders of the world that he built. He could see the double wall around Babylon, that it was a secure city. There was no city on the planet quite like Babylon at this moment. And he, in human terms, was the one responsible. This isn't grounded in like false visions of grandeur. He has done some amazing things. But he has disregarded Daniel and he has disregarded God. And this has led to great danger. It says, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. You shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You will be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. The voice of God says the exact same thing that Daniel had said, confirming Daniel's read on the, on the vision. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar and he was driven from among men. He ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. 
These details are a bit uncomfortable, almost humorous in how humiliating they are. That the picture of a man that is, that is hunched over, long hair, long nails, out in the fields, going, that's the glory of Babylon. And in the verses that follow, what it says is this, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. Now hear this. This was the punchline of chapter 2. This was the punchline of his vision a year ago. And he has never taken it onto his own lips. But he finally gets it. After his humiliation, he can finally declare it. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? You see, ultimately, no one becomes a Christian without experiencing humiliation. It may be like that external humiliation where it's bestial where someone is reduced to to a moment of everyone is aware of the shame and the brokenness of one's life. And quite frankly, we oftentimes pray for friends to be spared that, but sometimes that's the very door to life eternal. Sometimes we need to realize on the outside what is true on the inside. We are beasts before God. For others of us, it may have appeared more respectable, But the truth is the only way that anyone comes to be a Christian, the only thing that you need before God to be a Christian is to need. The only need is need that you would come before God and say, I've come to the end of myself and I can't save me. It's this recognition that all of a sudden you go, oh no, it's in me. Like, The selfishness and the brokenness of the world that's tearing it apart out there, it's coursing in your veins and you can't get rid of it by your own power. It is only when we come to the place of humiliation like that that we can actually be set free. We are internally bankrupt. We are dead. We don't need someone to cheer us on and give us some good advice. We need the power of resurrection to call us into a whole new life. We must be humiliated to the point where we can finally recognize it. And when we lift our eyes to heaven, we can think straight again. Nebuchadnezzar can finally see the world clearly when he knows it's not about him. Your world will always be warped as long as you think this life is about you. You'll be frustrated, you will feel like a victim, you will be threatened, you will be tempted to tell the story about how nothing works out the way it's supposed to because you think it's supposed to be about you. And God's going, lift your eyes to heaven and see the grand story so you can finally find your place in it. Well, the last note is this. Faithful exiles stand with the, humilia- with the humiliated. They stand with the humiliated. Even after they've been disregarded, they stand with them to the very end. Look at verse 36 and 37. At the same time, my reason returned to me and the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and my splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol the the honor and honor the king of heaven for all of his works are right, his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. 
and Nebuchadnezzar exits stage left. That's the last we hear from him. God is king, and he's able to humble the proud. And in this moment, we're, we're tempted to ask the question, how did he have a kingdom to come back to? If he was gone for seven months or seven years or seven divine units, how was it that there was a kingdom for him to return to? And this was a moment of aha for our house church last week, chewing on this text in advance, that it doesn't say directly in the text, but I think it, it's, it's a fair conjecture to say, because Daniel stood in the gap. Daniel was helping to rule Babylon at this point. He had been there longer than anyone else in the king's courts for 33 years, and he knew that it was going to be a bounded set of time. I believe that he covered for King Nebuchadnezzar and held things together so that the king had a throne to come back to. He didn't stand over the king when he was humiliated going, I told you a year ago. I told you it was coming. Why didn't you listen to me? He didn't say, I've always known better. He didn't revel in his shame. He stood by him when he was humiliated. Brothers and sisters, that we would be these sorts of friends. We know that Daniel did this because come next chapter, Nebuchadnezzar's son is on the throne and you know who's standing next to him? Daniel. Loyal to him even after he's dead. Oh, that we would be faithful exiles. That those people in our life that are curled up and asleep by the fire, that we would say, I'm with you to the end no matter what. Even if you disregard me, even if in your shame you think I'm going to leave you, I'm not. I'm with you because I love you and I'm committed to you. This is the journey of a faithful exile. And beloved Christians in the room, listen, is this not what the Lord Jesus did for you? Did he not stand next to you in your moment of great humiliation? Like those moments that you don't want to talk about, that you don't want anybody to know. Do you know that he saw you there and he entered into it and he said, give it to me. Put it on me. On the cross, he took your humiliation publicly and made it his own. He didn't stand over you and revel in your shame. He said, I'm going to be with you to the end. I'm not going to give up on you. I love you. He's faithful to stand with the humiliated even when they've disregarded him. Even when the humiliation has come because you didn't listen to his voice, he still shows up and he stands next to you and he says, give it to me. I can take your ashes and I can make them beautiful. I can take your death and turn it to life. And to my friends in the room who are not yet Christian, if you've fallen asleep by the fire, please don't convince yourself that this word is for someone else. It's for you. Lay down your pride. Your life is not about you, and it's not going to make sense until you realize that. But if you lay down your pride and you admit your need, King Jesus will take your humiliation upon himself, and he will give you life and glory and return. God can save proud Babylonians. That's good news. Let me pray for us. God, as the psalmist says, I was like a beast before you. I'm not worthy to receive your mercy. And none of us are, God. 
None of us are. But I thank you that you are faithful. You have been faithful to us, and I pray that for each Christian in the room, that we would be faithful with with your spirit coursing through us to love those around us, to love them to the end, to stay true, and to speak when the moment arrives. God, help us to flourish far from home and to usher your grace into every nook and cranny of this city and of our lives. We look forward to what you have for us. We bless you. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.